Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Munro, the CEO of Bannerman Resources and also Uranium Market Commentator. For our weekly catch-up in the world of uranium, we talk about Kazakhstan and continuing outbreaks of COVID-19 there, how Canada, Australia and Namibia are faring and how it's affecting productivity. We also talk about the fact that AOC is now open to including nuclear as part of the energy solutions for the US, plus 10 US senators have asked for an extension to the Russian suspension agreement. What does that mean? And the big news we think of this week is the announcement by Energy Fuels that they have hired Konstantin Karyanopoulos, who is the former uh, founder of Molycorp. Now that's quite a big deal, and we talk about why in this podcast, so enjoy it. Hey Brandon, how are you doing, sir? All good, Matt, how are you? Yeah, nice, yeah, good been a long week feels like a long week already and it's definitely the end of your week so uh thanks thanks for um touching base but it's been a quiet one all around hasn't it yeah something it's got that feel about a week that's just consolidated after probably six seven eight weeks of fairly busy news and quite a lot of spot price activity and you know we've just had a, a very gentle uptick in spot price uranium news companies just been one of those weeks that has meandered along, really. Meandered along. Well, this is going to be a short one, and I mean it this time. But um, just worth kind of going through some of the things which are affecting the macro component, because those things aren't changing too much. Well, if, if we look at Kazakhstan, obviously some numbers came out there. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, we have seen increasing COVID-19 cases in Kazakhstan over the last week. Um, which is not always a trigger for relaxing restrictions as they've done. So it's, it's, you can expect from that that they will be cautious going forward. We've, we've seen um, cases of, um, you know, 1,500 a day type thing, sorry, 350 a day type numbers coming through. And uh, interestingly, uh, Kazakhmus, which is the largest copper producer in Kazakhstan, uh, they've now had to close one of their very big mines near Karagandi. And that's the Nakazgan copper porphyry mine. So I think they had 35 cases out of about 1,100 workers. So it became a little hot spot for them. And um, they expect to have it back into production um, with uh, new shift rosters and all of that type of thing uh, in June. But still, that's a bit of a warning sign for Kazatomprom and anyone else in the industrial complex in Kazakhstan that with rising cases, the chance of becoming a hotspot does increase. Um, so we've seen continued high cases in Russia, although it is tapering off uh, over the last week. So I still see that as status quo. I don't see any uh, reason for the Kazakhs to be popping the champagne corks uh, anytime soon there, and I'd expect to see um, no reason why we won't have the Kazakh assets down for the three months that they're expecting, and we're a little bit more than halfway into that process now. Right. Okay. Uh, but again, as far as the macro story is concerned for uranium, that continues to be good news in terms of its redu- reduction of the supply into the marketplace. Should we touch upon some of the other? The, 
the other um, countries as well. Obviously, you know, we've talked in the past about Australia, Namibia, and Canada. What are you hearing from them? Uh, so with Canada, first of all, we are still seeing quite a high caseload in Canada. It is tapering off uh, in Saskatchewan. They're starting to open up again. I think they've put down 8 June as the date for restaurants and bars and gyms and so on opening up. But the Northern Territory still tells a different story there. So Laloche, the uh, village or the, the settlement that Cameco highlighted in their earnings call, uh, um, they are seeing some level of reduction in cases, but it's still a community in crisis. And there's little spot fires popping up around the place. There's, a, there's another settlement nearby that's now had 35 cases in a First Nations settlement. Uh, so I, again, there just isn't any call for a relaxation of what Cameco has done there until we really see those First Nations communities come through this and get over it. Then Australia, all, all fine there? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's almost embarrassing to say it being in Australia. We, we seem to have really come through this well. South Australia, which is the home to most of our uranium production with Olympic Dam, um, Beverly, uh, what, they haven't had a case since 7 May. And I think the last case before that was a couple of weeks before then. So you can, and they don't have any active cases left in the state. So uh, you can effectively declare South Australia free of COVID for now. I mean, of course, there's risks about uh, what will happen when they open up their internal borders into other states. And there's the chance of, I, I want to say a second wave, but it's really still a first wave that we would be exposed to. Um, their main border is with uh, Western Australia on, to the west, and uh, we've also got things pretty much under control, just a couple of cases each week. So I don't see any prospects for COVID-related supply disruption or dramatic supply disruption at those Australian centres. Um, I would just say there is still a lot of caution around interaction with Indigenous communities. So that is affecting the way that ERA goes about its business. Uh, so they've got different restrictions on their fly-in, fly-out and their drive-in, drive-out workforce to try and mitigate that. Uh, but the miners generally have adapted quite well now to all of these different ways of handling their shifts. Um, so it's probably just in the irritant category now for ERA and for Olympic Dam. Okay. And then your, your, your uh, territory, Namibia, um, it, you're back to work. Yep, Namibia's back to work. Uh, the mines in Namibia have been ticked through that what they needed to do was present a COVID management plan to the Ministry of Health before they could resume full production. They've done that. What we're hearing on the ground is that neither of those giant Namibian mines are back to full production, but they are um, back at work. Um, so that's, that's a good sign for Namibia, which has had fairly devastating economic ramifications from the shutdown. I mean, the shutdown's been very effective at controlling the virus. They, they only had 16 cases that they're aware of, and now, now there's a couple that have popped up in one part of the country. But again, they've, if, if the testing is an indication of what's going on in the population, uh, they've effectively eradicated it for now, um, but at some very dramatic cost. And I think uh, it's, it's really heartbreaking to see what that's done to a lot of the people there who are already on the poverty line or below. 
you definitely see a lot more impact on people from starvation and other um, related issues there compared to what they might have been facing with the virus itself. Into the longer term, that's going to promote a heavy development agenda and obviously incentivise the government to do whatever it can within its powers to bring on employment and development. So in the medium term, that's good for the uranium industry there as well. Okay, so what does all this mean? Okay, so we've talked before, you know, the past few shows about the macro story, supply demand, etc. Um, the, there continues to be disruption and people are trying to get back to work. But what's it mean for the uranium um, sector as a whole? And what's it going to mean for some of the, you know, the equities, you know, companies like Bannerman, um, companies that we, you know, in North America uh, and, and Africa, you know, what should people be, you know, looking for from these companies? Is it just more, more of the same or um, how, how are you viewing it? So I think what's relevant here is this supply disruption has contributed to accelerated destocking. Um, inventory has been the issue for our sector making a price breakout for several years. So even though we've had fairly deep deficits, in, uh, structural deficits in terms of uh, what's supplied in the world, primary and secondary versus what's consumed, it's destocking or underbuying or working off inventories, whichever one of those terms you'd like to use, that's what's filled the gap. And that's what's been necessary in order for uh, the utilities to return to fully buying what they consume. So if nothing else, this event or series of events is probably going to take 20 million pounds out of, out of the market. So there's 20 million pounds of additional destocking. To put that into some sort of context for the viewers, in the US, which is the largest single market for uranium, they destocked in 2018 to the extent of about 10 million pounds. Uh, we will shortly have the numbers for 2019, but we think it was pretty similar. So it's created the equivalent of two whole years of destocking in the US. And uh, most people who look really closely at these numbers, um, and I'd consider myself in that category, believe that inventory has now returned to historically normal levels. And in certain pockets, it's less than historically normal. And as we discussed last week, that comes in the context where there's numerous reasons why utilities would ought to be preferring to be slightly on the heavy side for their commercial inventories right now. And what I was referring to for viewers who didn't see last week's show was the Euratom um, security of supply comments where they were very strong in advising their Euratom member uh, utilities to maintain significant levels of inventory in order to risk manage um, a variety of different issues, transportation, um, bottlenecks in the conversion cycle, and also in increasing geopolitical risk and potential for mine supply to be unavailable. Um, so that's the immediate effect. The secondary effects of this go to sentiment. Now, investor sentiment, yeah, that's one thing. And uh, I think we're seeing uranium stocks perform okay. Uh, they've sort of slowed down in terms of expectations and liquidity and volume and so on. Uh, but they've still recovered everything that they gave up to the market after COVID-19 spooked uh, junior resources, at least. But what I really refer to when I say sentiment is a reason for utilities to 
revisit their procurement strategies, in particular, the procurement strategy of burning off their inventory or selling down their inventory. And a, a simple decision, if it was taken more or less across the entire industry to buy what they burn, not to destock, not to underbuy any further, that's going to put a lot of pressure on the structural deficit that without COVID-related disruption is still 20 million pounds. That's uh, more than 10% of the, of the production in the market. So I think if you look at those two things in combination, the destocking has occurred to an extent now where there is genuine tension and all it requires is the utilities to decide that that destocking has gone far enough and now it's time to be a genuine buyer of material to cover what they're burning in their reactors. And from there, demand growth will take care of that as we continue to see supply deficits at, uh, at a structural level. So but you think that people perhaps got a little bit too excited a couple of weeks ago in the, with uranium equities. The, the spot price, you know, has seen a significant recovery over the past couple of months. It's sitting at around, what, $34 today or yesterday. Um, do you think that that needs to move much more to give the market further impetus to kind of move forward? Or are we going to sort of see it sitting around these levels for some time to come? I don't think people got too excited necessarily because if you look at where equities are at the moment compared to not only the spot price in absolute terms but the setup that we've got for the rest of the year, I still think they're deeply undervalued. What I do think happened is many investors started this little upturn with unrealistic expectations of what would happen in the very short term. And, and that's been a recurring theme in our conversations, for example, and, and some of the others that you've had as well. And the expectation that this was the boom and some of the exaggerated numbers that we've seen in terms of the extent of the supply disruption. We've seen a few commentators uh, either get their numbers wrong or describe them in the wrong way. That's been caught on to by some retail investors and others who think that this is like an absolute uh, catalyst. And it, it's not that, it has had an effect on spot. So I think what we've seen is a slowing in equity prices partly because there's been some great profits for anyone who bought the dip. And as they've seen the spot price growth slow, that's been an appropriate time for them to consider taking profits. And also for those investors who bought with just totally unrealistic expectations of what the trajectory is really going to look to. And so I think that the setup is very, very strong for fourth quarter this year. And there's probably there's going to be a few um, plateaus in the spot price, there's going to be a few more lurches, it's going to come back. But on fundamentals, th uh, fourth quarter this year, probably leading in from third quarter, are going to look fantastic. And so for patient investors who can sit and buy these little mini dips along the way, I think there's, it's going to be great times. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And we have, we have sort of said that for about the past two or three conversations, past two or three weeks. I want to talk about something else. Um, this week... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's a representative from uh, East New York, uh, US representative, very vocal, uh, she's a very young, dynamic uh, Democrat, um, and um, 
she seems to know how to use social media to, to great effect. Now, she's come out and said that she would consider or she's open to nuclear as part of the green solution, which I think is big. And the, and the other thing that happened at the same time was you had 10 cross-party or bipartisan um, uh, senators also call for the extension to the Russian suspension agreement. So there's a lot of noise happening in nuclear, in, therefore uranium, um, this week in the in the US. So that's that's not going away. Cause, and the reason I say that, I just think a lot of people were slightly disappointed with the nuclear fuel working group report. Um, I think others latched onto it and said it was the next great thing. So the, it's definitely there's a discussion going on. What's your take of the of uh, with regards to what's happening in the United States on the topic of nuclear at the moment? First of all, with the bipartisan um, comments and call for not only the Russian suspension agreement to be extended or continued, but also to be enhanced and strengthened. Um, I, I don't really see that as big news uh, from my perspective anyway. Uh, I thought that was a quite natural next step. It has made news because of its links with the Nuclear Fuel Working Group report that DOE released a few weeks ago. Um, and when you look through the list of uh, provocateurs there, um, you've got the usual suspects who've already been quite vocal, uh, Lindsey Graham, Senator Barroso, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, don't look at, I don't look at that list, for example, and say, oh, my goodness, that person, that's interesting. On the other hand, AOC, her comments really are quite a watershed moment, I think, and that is big news that perhaps has been underreported or underrecognised. And so if we take a step back, she has represented the vocal uh, radical left and has uh, very demonstrably excluded nuclear from any consideration under the Green New Deal, uh, with a fair bit of support from Bernie Sanders when he was still running at the time. And so the Green New Deal was seen as, because of that exclusion, was seen as a real threat to threat to the nuclear industry and a threat to logic, really, and it's certainly a strong threat to the achievability of its objectives. How can you possibly exclude what still is by far the largest source of clean energy in the US and represents 22% of the grid? Now she's had reason to change that, and it'd be really interesting to know if um, Biden's influence there and having a more moderating influence has played a role in that. And her comments itself, for anyone out there, they should go to it directly. Um, not only did she say that the door is open to nuclear, um, but she also emphasised that it is a critical part of the discussion, um, which is about as close as you can uh, get to a backflip there in terms of her policy. And emphasising, I think, three times in her comments that the door remains open, uh, that's for my read, very much about allowing nuclear to come back into that conversation and start the new Green Deal. And there's been a number of lobbyists and, and even community groups and employee groups from nuclear reactors who've proposed an alternative Green Deal that just has a bit more reality and allows nuclear to play its role. So for me, that's important. Um, it's important because it's moderating the democratic position as they start to get closer to the election. 
Um, it means that one of the most attractive, if we can put it that way, like the most appealing is perhaps a better way of saying, it, one of the most appealing voices uh, on that far left end of the Democrat Party is now relatively aligned with the moderate view that Biden's got towards nuclear. But it also goes to um, the capturing, I think, a realistic perspective from the younger generation when it comes to looking at what nuclear can do. Um, what we typically see is a progression along many lifetimes where people start somewhat radically socialist and they go through university and they wave flags and they do all of that sort of stuff and they tie dye their shirts and whatever else it was that you and I did when we were there. And then as reality sits, sets in in life and they realize the hard grind of raising a family and paying bills, they sort of move more moderate and potentially out to the right. Um, so this is good for assisting the part of the um, constituency who are still going through that experiment with liberal socialist ideals and had made those ideals synonymous with anti-nuclear. Because the other thing to bear in mind is that uh, subsection of society, they haven't grown up with the fear of the bomb. And when you talk to many young people, and the stats bear this out in terms of when they segmentise uh, the surveys about support for nuclear power, um, in many cases, it's, it's a reliance on things that Greta Thunberg saying or AOC is saying and just wanting to fall into line with the, with the cult or with the movement, if I can put it that way. So this is important, and it's important for shifting the, the generalised voter base in favour of nuclear power and going into the election in November, it's moves like these that will create a really strong, positive foundation for nuclear in the struggling US market, regardless of who gets in. I think, I think it's a very in interesting time. Um, and I think timing has been really important. Because if you, if you look at people like, you know, Bill Gates has been banging the drum for you know, a few years now about nuclear. You've got the T-shirt wearing Michael Schellenberg. Um, has been telling this story for a long time now. Um, and then you've got things like the Michael Moore um, uh, film which came out, Planet of the Humans, which I don't know if you've watched, but you should, you should watch. Um, uh, uh, yeah, okay. You know, and it, it, it's kind of interesting. It's, certainly the narrative is in, interesting in terms of being slightly you know, anti-renewable um, and what that what the implications are for for a nuclear? There's a kind of kind of real, realism about what it takes to put all of this these energy requirements together. And then you've got someone you know you know young and dynamic like AOC, Alexandria, um, you know, telling a story to to a different audience in a in a different time. Um, it it seems to have, that's why that's why I was interested in what your what your thoughts were. So it's, it seems interesting that. Now, 10 senators coming together across party, bipartisan, coming together and pushing the, you know, made in America uh, story, um, protectionism, security and all of that kind of stuff. And then you've kind of got a very sort of liberal, you know, Michael Moore, AOC type of approach to this. It, it's nuclear is getting support from a lot of different sides in terms of age groups, you know, you know institutional versus the kind of social media type thing. Um, so it's a very inter interesting time in, in that people, I think, will better understand what nuclear is capable of. And, of course, 
Not everyone's going to buy it or love it, but um, certainly the fact that it's being talked about is good and it's and it's, and it's healthy. Um, the other thing, so so I think so again, it's possibly worth you know coming back to um, uh, you know another time, sort of seeing how that story plays out and, and develops. But mm-hmm. another little thing, I said this would be short, but we always have an interesting conversation, don't we? I don't know how we do it. Um, is announcement with Energy Fuels this week because they have we've previously talked to them about rare earths, you know, and and it mm-hmm. seems to be rare earths is sort of entwined with uranium in in terms of the you know radioactive material etc high value the security component um, the strategic geopolitical importance of it you know china being a big consumer of it and processor and etc so there's there's a lot of parallels here but energy fields this week announced that they um had engaged with and i'm gonna have to look at this because this 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 is a good a, a, a name which I'm going to struggle with. So it's Constantine Kerry Anaopoulos. Anaopoulos. Who, for those who don't know, um, originally sold Molly Court for about $1.3 billion. He's, he's very big in the sector. I think he then sort of bought out um, uh, when Molly Court then subsequently uh, went bust, bought out Neo from him. That's, I think, Neo, Linus, and um, Mountain Pass, the sort of three big players in, in the rare, rare earth space. So that alignment with a US-based company, with a US facility, is interesting to me because of the parallels with uranium. And I wonder, you know, what's going on there? What are your thoughts on rare earths as a strategic mineral aka uranium is for the United States? Is that, is that an important move for them or is that just this is what happens in this industry? No, most definitely. I mean, the parallels are really interesting with rare earths. Um, first of all, at a geopolitical level, uh, they have similar consequences to industry that uranium does. So um, the dominance, particularly in the heavy rare earth sector that China has, and China's willingness to weaponize it as well. So if you go back to 2010, you might recall that, that was there, there was that incident where an illegal Chinese fishing vessel was seized by Japan. And in one of the most interesting, blatant weaponizations of trade, uh, China basically said, send them back or we're not going to let any of our REEs cross the border for your technology industry. Um, so there are there, that's a reminder for people in the uranium sector, just how important geopolitics can be. And whilst the concentration of uranium is not as concentrated as rare earth elements, it's not that far off when you think that four countries produce 80% of the world's uranium and the top eight produce 95% of the world's uranium. It's certainly not copper or zinc or something else that's distributed pretty much anywhere. Um, The other interesting parallel is that, uh, as you've noted, there's a very strong coexistence of uh, uranium and thorium in most REE minerals. So most REE players need to have a good awareness and some understanding of uranium and thorium and radionuclides and all of the risks associated with that. And we have seen a little bit of the uphill battles that we face in the uranium sector leaking out into the REE sector, such as Linus's problems in Malaysia with uh, local communities uh, 
um, not having enough to do on a Thursday night and banding together to oppose the plant there and so on. Um, so there is a natural nesting, if you like, of um, uranium and REEs. And I think uh, any strategy that's designed to um, safely extract the uranium out of REE minerals uh, for beneficial use rather than expensive storage just has to make sense. Yeah, I was, I'm, I'm intrigued by it and I'm, I'm going to try and speak to the CEO, Mark Chalmers, next week, but I'm intrigued. It just it feels to me there's a kind of critical minerals story, a USA critical minerals story building here because the importance of uranium, the importance of these rare earths, etc. Um, I, I, I kind of feel that, uh, well, you know, the stars are aligning there because, they, again, they'll have very similar support in DC, uh, in terms of you know um, the you know senators or even you know Capitol Hill itself, because these are mm -hmm. very similar um, problems that they're trying to solve. So, but look, one for another and, and, day. And well, there are further parallels mm. um, as well that are worth thinking about, very much in the context of what the Nuclear Fuel Working Group report is driving at. Mm. So, uh, exactly. you might recall that. Um, basically, China said to a number of technology companies, the only way we can assure you access to heavy rare earths is for you to produce in China. And they, they were successful in implementing a significant shift of technology production out of the US, out of South Korea, to a degree out of Japan. And all of those countries that just didn't have heavy rare earths were enormously vulnerable. Um, so. China's got form and I don't see any reason um, why that form of influence on industrial bases won't be exerted from uranium. But here's the interesting catch. Uh, China, the boots on the other foot for China when it comes to uranium, because unlike REEs where they control 95% of the market, uh, it's almost precisely the opposite. They'll be over time, they'll be capable of producing only about 5% of their own uranium domestically absent some big discoveries. So uh, it's, it's just fascinating to look at where the parallels and where the analogues are between those two sectors. So we should come back to it. We should definitely come back to it because I, I think that language, that weaponizing is starting to be seen more. I think the USA is starting to use that language on a lot of uh, topics, not, not just in the mining space. Um, and I think, you know, the geopolitical component is, is always fascinating. It's always interesting. I'm sure there's a great book to be written on it as well. But look, Brandon, thanks so much for catching up with us this week. We didn't think there was much to talk about. We were wrong. Yeah, well, either we're very interesting or I just waffle too much. We'll let the viewers decide that. <laughs> uh, none of the above. None of, no, no, sorry, not none of the above. No, no, it's not that you're not interesting. It's, uh, and you don't waffle. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, Okay, well, I better let you get back to your weekend. You've got to get home, see the wife and kids, enjoy yourself. Anything planned for the weekend? Fun stuff? Just a quiet one here. Yeah. Just a quiet one. I've got a fair bit of work to catch up on. So it's going to be rainy on Sunday. So I've told the kids they can watch, uh, they can watch a movie and I'll disappear back into the office. Beautiful. Good man. Okay. Well, keep at it. We'll speak to you next week um, and uh, see how the world's changed then. Great. Okay. All right. Enjoy the weekend. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast 
or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.